Amen. All right, if you'd open your Bibles to uh, James chapter 1, we're going to be going through, uh, excuse me, 9, or beginning in verse 9. Um, What an awesome song at the end there. It's one of those ones where I pretty much don't open my mouth, so I'll probably ruin it. Um, But it was beautiful. The... uh, we're going to go right into James, and uh, we're in this book for uh, several weeks now. There's a study guide in the back. If you haven't got one, please feel free to grab one uh, on the way out. And there's questions and um, for both you and, and your family and just some extra study materials. But James, uh, by way of review, is the half-brother of Jesus, and he is a pastor of the Church of Jerusalem as he writes this, and he's the self-proclaimed or self-described bondservant of Jesus and his letter uh, describes really his own life in many ways because he had a, or experienced a radical transformation. He began as the brother who doubted Jesus, mocked Jesus, made fun of Jesus, uh, didn't believe he was who he said he was, and he became a martyr who was killed for his faith in Jesus, thrown off the top of a temple and stoned to make sure he was dead. So. His life radically shifted and began when he met the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, after, uh, obviously, he rose from the dead and talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's tempting, or many of us will read the book of James as kind of like a how-to of Christian living and go through a checklist of this is what I should be doing as a Christian and feel good uh, or bad, depending on how well we do on our, our marks. But James intends this to be a mirror by which we see our face and we see whether or not we are living out a genuine Christian faith. And if we actually take the time to read the book, and I know a lot of us kind of skim through stuff just to get through it, but if we actually take time to sit on some of the things he's saying, I don't think we'll always like what we see, both in the, in the book and in us. It's difficult to read. It is intended to be a convicting book. And... The fact is, though, what he is describing is a faith that does more than just generate behavior change in our life. He's talking about a radical faith that transforms every part of our being. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which you may have heard before, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is has come. And that's not descriptive of someone who kind of just decides to act differently. That's descriptive of someone who has a complete transformation in how they live life. See, when you become a Christian, the world doesn't change. The world's pretty much the way it is and was and has been for thousands of years, broken and messed up. But what changes is how we experience and live in the world how we see things, how we engage with things. There is a radical shift in us. And from the beginning of this very simple, practical book that a lot of us really like, it's fun to read, but I think maybe missed the point, is that James is trying to realign us with how God sees things. And to say that if you are a Christian, this is how you should see things. Now, I love James because I think... Uh, Paul has his own way of just kind of punching you in the face with stuff, and I kind of like that. But James is a little more subtle, but he's very raw and he's very honest. And he doesn't describe, he doesn't begin by describing the Christian faith of, you know, hey, it's so wonderful and things are so different. They are different, but what he begins in the first couple of verses is describing the Christian life or life as it is full of pain, full of suffering full of hardship, full of difficult decisions. And though we're tempted to think as Christians, if you are a Christian, it's tempting to believe or think that when trials come or bad things happen or difficult decisions come into your life, that that's evidence of the absence of God. But James says something completely radical and says, no, that's actually evidence of God's presence. That he actually uses trials, sends trials, ordains trials, makes bad things happen in your life so that you can move forward in maturity. It is His primary way of maturing you, of growing our faith. And it's easy to go, well, you just don't love me, God. But the fact is, He loves you so much, He doesn't want to leave you or I the way we are. And if left the way we are, we'll have a pretty pathetic and weak faith and be overcome by many things. 
And he says in the very beginning of the chapter here, in those trials, because you're not going to understand all of it, you're to ask for wisdom. Wisdom so that you can endure things you never possibly thought you could endure. And a lot of that wisdom comes by him going, let me show you your heart for a second. And he shows it to you, and it reveals the idols that have been hindering your faith the whole time. Things that wouldn't be revealed unless a trial came. And the fact is, he compares kind of wisdom and foolishness. The fool says, I don't need any wisdom. I don't need anybody. I am self-sufficient. I can figure it out on my own. The truly wise person recognizes that at best they're a fool and they know nothing. And that they need trials to understand. And trials are sent to remind us because how quickly we forget how often and much we need saving. That's why trials are there. So, we ended last week talking about this double-minded guy. The double-minded prayer. The man who doubts God when he's asking for wisdom as he prays to him. And it's the man who literally is, has a divided soul, is what the Greek says. A divided soul. A man who does not fully trust in Jesus. Does not love Him with all of his heart, but maybe part of his heart, part of the time. And it's not a question of when you pray, not allowing any little speck of uncertainty come into your mind in the moment. Otherwise, it's all lost. That's not what he's talking about. He's going way beyond that and saying it's a question of allegiance. It's a question of trying to love the world and God at the same time. And it's not going to work as you pray or as you live. And so it's noteworthy that the first thing, the next verse that James brings up, the first idea after the double-minded man, the double or divided soul guy, the first example is being rich and poor. Could have brought up anything. But he brought up both the context of the people and I think context for really anyone. There was one time that Jesus spoke about divided allegiances in very explicit terms. And he says in Matthew chapter 6, which is a whole chapter about provision and, and God's ways of providing. He says, Jesus speaking, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus says that men can serve God or they can serve money but not both. And that's nothing new. People have heard that all the time. Like, yeah, tell me something that I don't know. So let's go into James though, chapter 1 and we'll see how he speaks about riches and poverty and what this all has to do with faith. So in verse 9 is where we're going to begin as he echoes really the words of Jesus. And he says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So, which is again, not... Some news flash. Money, wealth, prosperity, prestige, success can be worshipped. And by worship, I don't mean that you create a little statue in the corner of your house, a little bling all over it or whatever it looks like to you, and you pray to it or light candles. Worship money, worshipping wealth, worshipping prosperity is about putting this thing as central to your life. And you may even not consciously think that you are. But it's where money and wealth becomes the source of identity, the source of meaning, the source of happiness, the source of hope, the source of peace and security. Now, it's not just about living lavishly. We kind of think of riches. We're like, well, I'm not living lavishly. There's people that you know, live way more lavishly than me. That's not what we're speaking about here. It's about fearing or revering or boasting and hoping in something other than God. And in this context, it's money. Now, our culture, if you think about it, defines itself by our prosperity, our success, or how much wealth we have. And again, it's very subtle. But we measure ourselves according to what we can purchase or what we can't. And I remember as a little kid where I grew up in, I would probably call ourselves like, 
you know, as the category middle class family. But I, I think back then we actually had not very much money. My mom bought the generic foods. Okay, maybe you guys experience like you go in there's like a can that says soup on it or a chicken noodle soup, and it's like that's all it says, right? Or noodles, and it says noodles. I grew up on powdered milk. We had uh, four kids in our family, and my dad was really big, so I guess he must have drank a lot of milk. But we milk's expensive, right? So you, you you drink a lot of milk, cereal. I was a cereal guy. I ate tons of cereal, okay, tons of it. Well, anytime I wanted cereal, I mixed it up because I had powdered milk, okay. And it was like a treat when my mom finally bought the dehydrated powdered milk with fat in it. It was like a two percent powdered milk. It's like this is like great, you know. And like I'm drinking this for a treat, so amazing. So we would mix milk. That's I, I grew up with. We bought the bread. You know, there's really good bread. I met, when I got married, I realized that there were other bread. I used to buy the bread. It was like the 25-cent loaf. That's what it was. And as you do peanut butter, you know, it like, it just like disintegrates, you know, as you put the peanut butter on it. But I loved it. I mean, that was like my bread. I still like that today. My, bless her heart, Kayla doesn't like to buy that stuff. But I'm always like, no, let's get the cheap stuff on the bottom row. That's where the good bread is. So she buys it now because to me it's like, it's like candy. I just love it. I can just, you know, roll it up and just eat it. It's so good. It's one of those sandwiches, like, when you left it in your lunchbox, the jelly would soak through it, you know, after a while because it was so thin and just cruddy bread. I love that bread. Still love it today. But I grew up on, on, you know, that kind of food. And I remember feeling a sense of shame. Whenever, like, elementary school, we'd go on field trips. There's, like, one or two, and they would say, bring some money for the trip. And I would typically bring a sack lunch. And every now and then I'd bring money. I remember getting $5 for my parents. And it was like, I didn't get allowance for anything. Okay? Nothing. I just didn't happen in our family. It's still, I'm a little conflicted that we actually give our kids money now because it's just a foreign thing to me to give them money to do chores. You just do them or you know what happens. So the idea of doing that was foreign to me. But to get money from my parents was huge, but I remember the kids, that'd be no big deal. They'd be buying stuff, and I'm like savoring, like, maybe I shouldn't buy lunch at all. I'd just hold on to the money, because I never had that. It was, I was evaluated my life. My mom made clothes for my sisters. I learned to sew. Yes, I can sew. I learned to sew because my mom was a seamstress, not by, you know, occupation, but she sewed my sister's clothes, and she sewed some of mine. You know, I'd get a sweatshirt, like, Thinking at the time, like, yeah, I could pick whatever fabric I want. And then after you look back at pictures, you're like, I look like a friggin' dork, you know? And it's like, you don't realize it in the moment, but I was impoverished. And you begin to measure who you are and take identity from that because of what you have or what you don't have. And our culture's that way. Um, you, uh, if you don't have, like, you know, I remember I didn't have a cell phone for years. And people would be like, well, I got a cell phone when the church started. That's the only reason. And I only use it for the church because I wouldn't have one otherwise. But the fact that I didn't have a cell phone or you didn't have a computer was like, what, what's wrong with you, you know, type of thing. But maybe I couldn't afford one. I didn't want to afford one. But we measure things in our culture according to, um, really, the world judges us on our personal value, whatever economic class we're in. Um, it becomes a source of peace and security if we've got a portfolio, we've got a savings account. I mean, those are the things that, okay, I still have this money over here, so I'll be okay. That's where our peace and security come from. And measuring, the, the, the fact is measuring ourselves according to our circumstances, impoverished or rich, or measuring ourselves according to anything that is not rooted in the Word of God is idolatry. It's idolatry. If you measure your value, find your security, hope, meaning, in anything else, whether it be a person or a thing, it's idolatry. And the worship of money, which is what it is, call it consumerism, call it capitalism, or the biblical term for it's greed. Call it whatever you want. It's packaged in really interesting terms today. Sometimes we like, well, it's fiscal responsibility. Some people call it wise stewardship, okay? But that's just wrapping over, I love my money. I worship my money. My money gives me peace and my hope. Now, in a letter to a young pastor, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money, not money itself, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And through this craving that some oh sorry, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And James is going to write here that both being poor and rich, both the poor and rich can idolize money. They both can. They're actually guilty of the exact same things, just different angles of looking at it. 
And being rich is a trial. We don't think of it that way. But being rich is a trial. And being poor is a trial. Well, that's obvious. But they're both rooted in finding one's identity in something other than Jesus. So verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, which seems somewhat backwards. Poverty is a trial, I believe, sent by God. And we don't actually all believe that it's a trial sent by God. We actually think it's a trial caused by someone's bad choices. We actually believe that poverty always results from someone who has a bad work ethic or didn't plan very well or you know, had some kind of social disadvantages that they didn't grow up in certain families or what have you. And from what we know, poverty seems to come from people who choose make simple choices or sometimes it's a result of the simple choices of others that we don't have control over, like some of this economic mess we're in. We didn't tell the bankers to do certain things, but it's kind of messed it up for a lot of us. So, regardless, though, of how it comes, regardless of where the poverty you think is created from or sent by, being poor tests our faith. It tests our faith. You can assign numbers to lifestyles, or you can get you know, classes, or you know, however you want to identify what poverty is. Most of us actually think we're poor. Funny. We may not call it that, but we think we're impoverished at some level. We could have more. And if that isn't the actual truth, regardless, not having a job, not able to pay bills, you know, not able to provide whatever it is we think we need, it tests our faith. And it's not often, I think, that poverty actually builds faith naturally. Although I think we need to challenge that a little bit, because I think that it maybe should. It's always viewed as something undesirable, but I wonder if poverty is actually a good thing sometimes. Um, the truth is, it maybe should actually build our faith because there are some intrinsic blessings in poverty that we don't think about. One is we have a lot of freedom from stuff. Freedom from materialism. Um, I don't know how much stuff you guys have you think about in your homes that you don't need. My wife is teaching me all the stuff we don't need and she's a big throw away type of deal and it kind of ends up biting us later sometimes. But I've learned that there's a lot of stuff you just accumulate over time that you don't need. You fill houses with stuff you don't need. There are people that, uh, um, my dad is one of them, he, when they got, my parents got divorced after 25 years, terrible story, but the fact is he had to move out of his house, obviously, or they moved out of the house that was uh, the house together. And so as he's moving, he rented one of those huge dumpsters, like one of those big things that's like, I don't know, 20 feet long, and just and filled it and still had more stuff to put in it. Stuff that you just didn't need. And we get bound by stuff all the time. And like kids at Christmas get so much more stuff. It gets just overwhelming. There's a freedom in poverty from stuff. There's also, uh, I think, forced dependence upon God, where you have to depend on God because it ain't coming. So you are forced to pray, forced to plead with God, forced to sit with God in a way that maybe you have not had to before or wouldn't if you weren't forced into it. Or an appreciation for the small things of life. I don't know, um, Brent, who's a sea church pastor, mentioned this, and I was like, you stole that from me because I love Little House on the Prairie. Love, love, love it. Okay, for lots of different ways. Bought my wife the first volume set of Little House on the Prairie. If you ever watch these things, amazing back in the, whatever, 70s, that they're like, Jesus is this. I mean, they're just like talking about Jesus the whole time and how sinner and this is awesome. But the thing about it is a beauty in the simplicity of life that they have. They have Christmas episodes where, you know, they're working and scratching for every penny so they can get that one gift, that one special gift for one another or whoever it's for. And uh, we watched that with my kids. My kids are kind of looking at it. You know, I said, hey, you know what, kids? And Fisher's like, oh, no. I said, you know what? We should do a little house on the prairie style Christmas, which is really like, Nothing new. It's actually old. So, and so I said, I want to get, let's just get one present. I'm going to get you one present, Fisher. And he's like, um, okay, uh, I think. Because you know, he typically gets presents from grandparents, presents from my sisters and aunts, all that stuff. He gets tons of presents. I hate it. But we said one, I don't want anyone to get presents. One present. Well, you're going to spend all the money you would. Oh, so it's a big present, right? You know, No, just one present. It's going to be a very special present that I think about. You learn to appreciate those things. 
You always learn to appreciate what you have when, when you don't have other things else. You start to see things that you love about that one thing you get. There's a beauty in that. There's a beauty in simplicity. There's a beauty in poverty. But we don't think of it, I think, that way. But it's ironic that I think God often uses poverty to bring us closer to Him and to bring us closer to kingdom values, to bring us closer to a life that was actually more like Jesus than maybe rich. He was very poor. And we're forced to deny what we want and depend on God for exactly what He knows that we need. But more often than not, I think poverty has a tendency to hinder our faith. And we despair and we falter because we get overwhelmed with the circumstances of not being able to pay bills, of not being able to put food on the table or provide whatever. And instead of learning to worship God, we actually begin to idolize wealth as we're in our poverty. And we begin to see and view money as the solution to our problem. If I just had this, it would be taken away. If I could just pay this, if I just had a little bit more, all of these things would be resolved. And you begin to really disregard any spiritual value of God putting you there on purpose and begin to seek out worldly value and maybe even begin to deny God loves you at all and get angry, deny that God makes good on His promises to provide everything you need. You may even begin to sin flat out and, and, and covet what everyone else has. Or you may go for to actively do something like cheat or steal so that you can get ahead or get around or get beyond just to get a little bit more. That's idolatry of riches. That's idolatry of wealth. Putting all your hope and stock in that to save you. And here's the question that, again, wasn't my question. It was a pastor. I heard it. It was really challenging to me. And the question is, are you willing to live at a level that God wants you to live at? That He's put you at? Are you willing to live at that level? that God wants you to. Because when we lack what we think we need or want, we dwell on the wonder and fulfillment that riches will bring. But what James says here is that the lowly brother, the one who is low in position, the one who is petite in wealth, the one who is small in power or regard, should not look at himself as poor, but as rich. As rich. He should exalt, boast in his exaltation, which it seems like the opposite of what a poor person is. He says that our faith is not built on obtaining the necessary money to get out of the trial. Our hope is built on a change of perspective in that trial. Looking at things differently. We're to boast in the exaltation, not that God will make you great or wealthy or famous or whatever, but that God has already made much of you. That He has already made much of you. Now He warns us not to focus on these deficiencies of our kingdom, of what we don't have, but to look at the abundance of the kingdom that God has built and given to us. And to do this is hard. It's hard when you can't pay a bill to step out, it's not even to step out, to exercise faith in the moment. But to not do this leads us to sin. To not do this leads us to idolatry. We can't find salvation in money, but we sure look for it. And so he says we're not to look at the depths that we are in, but the heights that Jesus has taken us to. And we don't dwell on that much. When we get poverty, the circumstances are like, I just need to pay the bills. I just need to get this if I can. You're you're overwhelmed. How often do we stop and go, I'm wealthy. I'm rich because of what Jesus has done, what He has poured out on the cross for me. Think about this. You are righteous. If you are in Christ, you are righteous before God right now. You are loved right now. You are a child of God right now. In His family, in His home. He has not forgotten you. You are a citizen of God's kingdom. Right now. And you have access to the throne of the God of the universe right now who hears you and like a good father wants to provide for you. Right now. And you are an heir with Jesus who has been exalted above all names 
Bible says you are an heir with Him. An inheritance of eternal life. But you're an heir now and how positionally you are with God and you are heir in the future to glories you cannot possibly imagine. That's how rich we are and how we are to think about our lives now. When Paul was sitting in the Philippian jail in Philippians 3.8, he had lost so much. The beginning of his ministry was, here's your resume for ministry. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer. Thanks, Jesus. And he did. He lost everything. He lost regard. He lost power. He lost money. And he says this as he's sitting in jail thinking about this. Philippians 3.8 says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, junk, in order that I might gain Christ. doesn't matter. It's all a waste. Then we get to the trial of riches, which is actually quite similar. Verse 10 and 11 says, And the rich should boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Riches are a trial set by God. Catch that. Riches are a trial set by God. It is intended to test your faith, those who think you are poor and yet you are rich. You are being tested. And as I said, most people are dismissive like, well, yeah, I'm glad he's talking to the rich people in here. Because we don't look at ourselves as rich. Upper class. No, 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 no. I still drive a 1986 Chevelle. That's not you know, the truth. But James... And it, Honestly, people, the rich people in the Bible have kind of a bad rap. I didn't want to be rich. But the fact is, James doesn't attack the rich as, as children of the devil or wealth is bad. The Bible never says riches are wrong. What it says is everything depends on how the wealth is obtained, how it's used, and what position it is or has in the heart of those who possess it. Being rich tests our faith a little bit differently, but it certainly tests our faith. And success and prosperity and wealth are trials sent by God. And though we often believe, just like we do with the poor, that well, wealth came because I was just wise. I was smart with my money. He was dumb. I committed myself to a good education and got good grades. That guy dropped out. We could have had the same experience. I've just been good. Deuteronomy 8 tells us something different. There's an interesting verse I stumbled upon. Deuteronomy 8.17, as God speaks to Israel, says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Newsflash, nothing you have is of your power. It is all a blessing of God. Every skill you have, every coin you have, every resource you've ever been given or have bought, it's all been given by God. And most people, I think, believe that riches can only be a blessing. That that's The poor hear about the woe of the rich and go, I'll trade your woe for my woe any day. Okay, Your trials are nothing like mine. I'll take the trials of the rich. I can deal with those problems. I can't deal with my poor ones. But in truth, I believe, and we're talking in a spiritual way, in a faith way, the rich have an incredibly more difficult time than those who are impoverished with their faith. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel, which I think this is kind of hard, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Oh, that's why I'm not rich. I'm not rich. Again, most of us don't think that we're wealthy, so you probably just tuned out. But you shouldn't because you all are, or a lot of us are. By nature of living in America, we are richer than 80% of the world. Riches test our faith, and though it uh, manifests itself differently, the issue is still one of identity and idolatry. And James' instruction for this is very practical words, echoes what Jeremiah said 
hundreds of years before. In Jeremiah 9, the prophet said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. James tells us to boast. The rich person should boast in his humiliation. But the rich person is not humiliated. He has all the regard in the world. Yeah, in the world, it's right. But he's to boast in his humiliation. To the poor, he had said, glory in the fact how rich you actually are. And to the rich, he says, glory and boast in the fact of how poor you actually are. Do not look to the heights, rich guy, that you are in this world, but focus on the depths that Jesus has taken you from. Recognize how depraved and broken you are. See, we're made rich in the cross, but our brokenness and our weakness and our pride and all our self-sufficiency is what made the cross necessary. We are to identify with the humiliation of Christ, who was a servant. Now, I don't think we even grasp this. You ever read Philippians chapter 2? The infinite God the King of kings who had everything by nature being God gave up everything. Someone can't give up more than he gave up. And came down, not as a king, not as a real good famous celebrity, came down as a peasant carpenter, as a man to begin with, then as a carpenter, then he is spit upon, broken, mocked, crucified by those people that He came to love and that He poured out His blood for. That's what we're supposed to exalt Him for those who are rich. Boast Him. The fact that He has done that for me. That's how broken I am. That's the extent. That's the cost of my life. 1 Corinthians, Paul writing again, said it this way in chapter 1, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. The medicine for the rich is humility. And it's the very opposite thing that the rich have in this world, genuinely speaking. Our tendency is not to identify in the cross, whether you be rich or poor. It's the same exact problem. The poor idolize what they don't have, thinking it's going to save them, and the rich idolize what they do have, thinking it's going to save them. It's the exact same trial. And James provides this vivid illustration that would be understood by the, the Eastern mindset of what happens to riches, and it's to apply both to the rich and the poor. And it's this picture of this burning wind that comes to the Syrian desert and the grass grows in the morning and you've got this beautiful grass and these wildflowers have the dew and they've just sucked it all up. It feels good. And then by noon, the heat and the wind have come and wilted and killed it all. The beauty of riches is passing. It is temporary. I read something this week and it said this and it just rang true for me that no one ever has seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. You lose it all. And the question is, what are you doing with it now? Because it ain't going with you. It's going to someone else. James is calling both the rich and the poor what I believe is to a radical faith. And it's a radical faith that in the midst of a trial requires wisdom. And then we get that wisdom, we begin to see a right view of things. We begin to see the world through the eyes of the kingdom of God. And then behavior comes. Action comes because of what God has shown us. Now, times are uh, they're hard. I, they may be harder than they've ever been, at least in a long time. But I don't believe that the economic hardship is the thing that's plaguing most people. I think we are more plagued by the idolatry of our hearts. And we will be after this economic thing has passed. And whenever a pastor talks about money, people check out immediately. That's right. This is what church is about. Talking about money. Forget it. Tuning out now. 
And I don't like to talk about money, but they don't realize that Jesus talked about money a heck of a lot. And Paul talked about money a lot. And it's probably because we love it a lot more than we love God. And as we study James' letter, um, I'm asking you to consider your faith. Every aspect of your life. Has there been, just like James, a radical shift in how you see things? Not just behavior change, not just I'm going to do a radical shift on how you see and engage the world. And I know a lot of us have these legal defense teams rushing to our mind, justifying why we don't give or why I have to hold on. Don't give to that guy. He's been there all week. You saw him on the other corner over there. I think you can do something bad with that money. It's not good stewardship to give him anything. We do it all the time. Things come across our, our zone of life and we just go, well, here's the reasons why I shouldn't do. It wouldn't be wise because I've got to buy something with the money I have that's probably important and I'll figure out what it is. So as part of my prep this week, I went in and ran the giving records for our church. I know some of you are really ticked. What? What would you do? Yeah, I ran the giving records. Look, everyone gave in the church. I've only done this twice in the time that I have been a pastor. And it's the yuckiest thing that I get to do. And right now, if you're going, well, why would you do that? Well, who else is going to look? I mean, if I can't look, who else should? Well, the elders shouldn't. Should? What? Why is that such a problem? If that bothers you, think about it. Why does it bother you? Because you don't trust me? Don't know me? Don't trust us? A lot of questions are probably coming up. I've only done it twice. First time I ever did it, I only looked at a group of six men who are elders. I printed it off and I handed it out at an elders meeting. I said, all right, guys, this is about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. Let's see who's given and who's not and why. Let's talk about that. Because if we're going to set some kind of leadership standard, we better set a leadership standard. That was a fun conversation. So the second time, which was this time, I pulled it. And I am fully confident, first of all, in our elders and their commitment to this church. And if you ever want to know, I'll fly out tell you everything I have given, ever. And I'll, every elder will too. We'll lay it out. Every little detail, if you'd like to know. Nothing to hide. Open book. You can look at anything. You look at whatever we spend, all of it. But providentially, and this is providence, it wasn't me, I find out for the first time, this all comes about, for the first time, Chris is our treasurer. He told me we didn't meet budget this month. I said, that's odd. They're thinking, oh yes, you planned this, see? It's all coming together. It's like, no, this all happened. Chris can tell you, I don't like to talk about don't want to know about money. Um, I'm like the guy who asked the wife, and that, I guess, is Chris in a weird way. Like, can we buy this? Yes, no, okay. I don't want to know. Maybe that's not wise, but I like to be away from it. So we said, we didn't need budget this month. I said, okay. Well, that's funny. We're preaching on idolatry this week. We'll see how that goes over. So I was floored by what I saw when I laid this out. Floored by, first of all, there are some faithful, faithful families in our church. Faithful. And I guess, I don't know, I don't know if I expected that or what, but it was awesome to see just people who are faithful. It's not, well, it's not like we had like the, the Golden Club and like the Silver Club and, you know, well, these guys in the Golden Club is great. It was just consistency and faithfulness. It was awesome to see. But the thing I think that floored me the most was some of the most faithful people, and I'll just talk about one, I won't name the person, 18-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid in our church, probably, I don't know, works, I don't know how old they are, maybe they're 19, 20, I don't know, 18-whatever-year-old kid, probably works a job for 8 bucks an hour, max, has given faithfully, and we've not talked about money here, we're not the prosperity, plant a seed, and it will go, hey, no, forget it, okay? We have never passed a plate, never will. 18-year-old kid has faithfully given more over the last nine months from January than well-established families that are not hurting economically, 
well-established families, people that I know have been faithful Christians, faithful Christian, I don't want to put quotes around, for years. And now it's not like, well, this guy gave five more bucks. It's infinitely greater. So much so I'm like worried about the 18-year-old kid. Like, how is he paying for anything? Not to mention I know the situation of that kid and the brokenness of his home and the death that his mom and others are in. Faithfully given. I was floored by that going, what is the difference here? And I'm not suggesting that how much you give is a measure of your faith. But I am stating that perhaps it's a measure of your idolatry. And that's not for me to decide. I'm not going to stand in judgment. I just looked at numbers. Our faith is supposed to be radical. But when your cable bill is more than you give to anybody, I have to wonder what kind of change has happened. When your cell phone bill and those kind of little unnecessary, and they are necessary. There was a time when we didn't have cell phones or email and the world functioned great. We'll house the prairie. Go watch it. Okay. <laughs> But I have to wonder that if that's an indication of, of something. Of something. When someone's cable bill is larger than they're giving, my guess is they probably spend more time on their Facebook than they do with God, too. My guess. But our faith is supposed to be radical, require radical change of heart. So I'm going to show you just a quick passage, and we will close, to make you feel less uncomfortable, and me too. Acts chapter 2. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up there. And this is where people all want to go back to. And I agree, it's a wonderful place. Acts chapter 2 is the chapter where the church is birthed. And you see this radical change overcome these people. Where their poverty and their riches become meaningless in the light of the gospel. And Acts 2.42 says this as these people hear Peter preach. And he basically preaches this. Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe. It's not really... A real clever sermon, but it's powerful enough to have thousands of people come to faith. So these people, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to proceeds to all as any had need. And that's the way it should be. People giving to people. People selling their stuff. Inviting people into their homes. Blessing one another. That's the way it should be. But that's not what happens. In large part, that's not what happens. We all say, I want to go back to the New Testament church and I want to be like that. Okay. Nothing's stopping you. No one's telling you not to. Do it. In fact, The people who are impoverished, you tell them they're rich in Christ. They're rich in Christ. That's hard to believe. But when you bless them, guess what they see? That they're rich in Christ. You're ministering them through Jesus. I would love to be asked to. I would love to and should be doing that. They should be blessing one another. We should be taking care of one another. People come across your path all the time where you have a decision whether or not you are going to take care of them or not. And you can close your eyes to it. We all do. We all pretend it's not there. I do it all the time. It's like, it's like when you see, I used to see students in the supermarket all the time because I used to be a teacher, right? And I pretend I don't see them. I'm like, you know, and they're like, Ford! And I like start picking up something that, I, you know, just to get away. We do that with the impoverished and the needy And it's anyone that has a need that comes across our path. We ignore it. Someone else will take care of it. It's honest. We do that. Well, yeah, idolatry. That's why. It's idolatry. Skip two chapters over. Chapter 4. This will be the last one. Same spirit of what's said in Acts chapter 2. 4, verse 32. Again, early church, new church, talking about radical faith, nothing new, something really old. Retro. Verse 32, chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, sounding the same, and soul, and no one said that any things that belonged to him was his own, 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The fact of the matter is, yes, people are supposed to be giving to one another, and that's part of a radical faith. Another part of radical faith is coming here and giving of our tithes and our offerings so that we can bless others. The fact is, people come to church. The needy contact us all the time because they know or hope that there's something to get there. That's where people hope for. And you have to understand that our church, our body here, is about more than lights and cut out holes in the wall and hard chairs and having a Sunday morning gathering. You think, well, I'm just giving so we can make sure this goes. There's so much more than that. And we don't really publicize all that stuff because it would probably make you all prideful. Look what our church is doing. But I'll tell you some stuff. Last Bible study, Wednesday night, men's Bible study, a guy walks in. Looks pretty disheveled. Someone says, hey, someone, he needs to talk to a pastor. I'm like, okay. So I start talking to him, and the Bible study is about to start, so I had said, Mark, talk to him. Mark, one of our pastors, talks, so talks to him. He needs gas money. This, is, this happens all the time. He needs gas money because his mother-in-law, get the story right, had triple bypass, and she was suffering alone in the hospital, and he wanted to drive his wife down, but she was way down south of Seattle, and he had no gas. So Mark could have done what we typically do. I don't know. Tell me about that. But he walks him over to that gas station right over there, and he filled his tank up, and he let him go. Who knows where he went? There was a person that called us. And this happens all the time. We pay rent. We pay weird things. I had a lady call, and she wanted money because she burned her hair off with bleach. I mean, weird stuff. Okay? People call who are not Christians. People come for food all the time. One person called. She was a eight months or pregnant. She was eight months pregnant. Her husband was out of work. They were staying in a hotel because they were homeless and needed $265 to stay for another two weeks until the baby was born. Then they'd be in the hospital for a couple days. We couldn't do it because we couldn't afford it this month. just about lights. So then another couple calls. Says, they were again in need. They said, we have called a bunch of churches. We need to have a funeral for our grandmother who unexpectedly died. And all these churches charge us all kinds of money. Can we have a funeral at your church? So Mark thought, well, you know what? Gosh, we could kind of help two people here. What if we just tell them if they give us $265, we'll be able to help this person over here, and then they're paying something, which is much less than what they were being charged. So I said, well, what if they say they can't afford that, Mark? Says, well, we'll let them use it anyway. So called up and said, hey, if you can come up with $265, then we'd love to be able to help you. And Mark's going to run the funeral, too. They said, no, we can't afford that. Mark said, don't worry about it. Give what you can or nothing, that's okay. You come, and next Saturday there's a funeral here. Guess what? The lights have to be on for the funeral. The heat has to be on for the funeral. We're probably going to make coffee for the funeral for people that do not go to our church but want to have a celebration for their grandmother that died. We've had a couple in our church that suffered medically terribly and he lost his job and when the medical was about to run out there was a one month time because he got another job. One month time where he couldn't afford to pay the medical a premium. And if we didn't pay the medical premium for them, they would lose their coverage and she would never get coverage again because it's a pre-existing condition that's very bad. We pay the coverage. And what if that happened this month? I would have thrown on my credit card is what I would have done. I can't afford it, but I would have found a way. That's what we're doing here. So there are times as we give of our tithes and offerings, it's not just to turn the lights on and to have a worship service. You'll see all kinds of things happening through this place, in our church, and through the lives of people here. And there's a lot of stuff we have to now say no to, or have had to say no to. But there's a ton of stuff that we've been able, by the faithful people, to say yes to. 
that you don't even know about. And I could make, give you all kinds of lists of things, but it's not worth it. We support orphans in Africa. We support orphans and church planters in India. We support a missionary in France trying to plan the gospel in a place that's more Muslim than it is anything anymore. Why don't you tell us about these things? Why? So you'll stop being idolatrous? If that works, then okay. If you're poor, if you consider yourself poor, I pray that you will know how rich you are. And if you are rich, I pray you will see how poor that you actually are. And in fact, how much your Savior has given both of you. And the question we must all ask ourselves, giving to God is a response. It's not to garner a response from Him. He's already responded to us. He said, I love you and I'm giving it all for you. And if we don't give back to Him, whatever that looks like, we are denying the fact that He gave up so much for us. And the question we must all ask ourselves is, when was the last time you gave up anything for anyone? Really? Well, I've given up. When was the last time you sacrificed for someone where it really hurt? Where you felt it? That's what Christ did for you. He felt his sacrifice. And it hurt. And it was for us. So as we take communion today, if you are poor, I pray, as you lift up that piece of bread and you dip in the wine, you recognize and exalt and boast in how much God has made of you. If you are rich, He has made the same of you, but He has also taken you from nothing. And everything you have is because of Him. That is what our focus is here. It's not all this. It's that we can proclaim the gospel through everything we do and say and are. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for brokenness in my own heart. I pray for brokenness in our church. That You will reveal to us in a new and fresh way how rich we are, how much we've been given. And that that faith, Father, will come alive in our hearts and make us radically different. That we'll view opportunities to give in a radically different way. That we will give as Your Son gave to the people that come across our path and to Your body sacrificially cheerfully in response to everything You have done for us. Forgive us for our idolatry. Whether we are poor or rich, Father, we have made much of money. We have found security in money and wealth. Let us find hope and meaning and peace and joy in You. And though it may seem foolish in the eyes of the world, we will give to one another as we give to You. In the blood of Your Son,